This is the other side of midnight on 77 WABC. I'm Frank Moreno. It seems like the more questions there are about foreign affairs, we're only left with more questions. How does what's happening in Ukraine affect what's happening in the United States? How does what's happening in Afghanistan affect what's happening in China? How does what's happening in Taiwan affect what's happening in Russia? There's this interconnectedness of global affairs where it often seems there are these unlikely allies, there seems there are these unlikely adversaries, and it seems like no matter which way you turn, there are only bad options. At least that ha- that's how it so often seems. Well, uh, at times like these, we're very, very lucky to have a think tank like the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. That may be my favorite think tank. And in an era where we have uh, people in both parties, uh, cable news pundits on conservative outlets and liberal outlets, all seeming to clamor for more more and more war. I'm glad the Quincy Institute is there, and I'm very, very pleased to welcome a writer uh, that I have a great deal of respect for who's caused me to think differently, not only about foreign policy, but American policy with respect to p- defense procurement issues, international affairs, and a whole bunch of other issues. Trita Parsi, he happens to be the co-founder and executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He's also the founder and former president of the National Iranian American Council. Uh, Trita Parsi, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thanks for having me, Frank. It's always a pleasure. So for folks that aren't familiar with the Quincy Institute, what is it exactly? So it's a think tank in Washington that in many ways is unique because at the core of our mission is to shift American grand strategy, meaning that framework of our foreign policy away from one that is constantly getting into these endless wars and towards a, a, a strategy that is centered on diplomacy and military restraint. We believe that if we pursue a policy in which we're no longer seeking to dominate every corner of the globe, the American people would actually become more safe and more resources would be available for us to spend at home on our own people rather than on waging war abroad. It seems uh, a little unusual to name a uh, think tank after Quincy Jones. I mean, a great musician, to be sure. But really, why would you name a think tank after him? (laughs) Well, obviously, we're, we're, we're naming it after John Quincy Adams, who in 1821 gave a fantastic speech in which he said, America goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. And he was making the case that if America pursued that path of this uh, interventionist uh, foreign policy, it could become the dictresses of the world, but it would come at the expense of her own spirit and her own liberty. And that is exactly what we think we have seen after 20 years of the war on terror. We've seen that so much of that has come at the expense of the American public's own civil liberties. I'm sorry to ask a question which may sound silly or elementary, but unfortunately I have to ask it because these days when people hear opinions, when they hear expertise from anyone, they almost have to guard themselves against bias depending on the ideology. Now, the Quincy Institute, are you guys liberal or are you conservative? We're both. Uh, we have people that are on the conservative side. We're people on, who are, are on the liberal side. We believe that there is a significant overlap between people on the left and the right who both 
are in opposition to the foreign policy that we have been pursuing for the last two decades. We want to see less war and more resources and focus on our own people back home. Uh, those elements exist on both sides, and we want to unite them to be able to pose the best possible challenge that we can to those who are constantly dragging us into new wars. That's why, uh, on at least on foreign policy issues, sometimes Donald Trump and Pat Buchanan can sound a lot like Tulsi Gabbard and Bernie Sanders. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, All right. Let's talk about the Russia-Ukraine situation, which uh, the whole world's been fixated upon for the last two months. And uh, you look at the coverage of what's happening there and you only shake your head because it only seems to be growing more and more sad by the day. Um, There's a there's a narrative that has taken shape in the United States on the media, on most of the major news outlets. That's very clear that uh, Russia is the bad guy here. They are on the side of evil. The Ukrainians are on the side of good. And the more that the United States can do to aid the Ukrainians, that is us being on the side of the angels. Uh, you've written and, and spoken out about how many internationally view this situation a bit differently than the United States media does. Why would people internationally view the situation as anything other than Russia being the bad guy here? Well, I think a lot of countries in the global south, which I focused on in that article, do believe that Russia is the aggressor. They're the ones who have invaded Ukraine. They're the ones who are bombing the country right now. It's not Ukraine who has invaded Russia. And they recognize that, and they do see Russia as having violated international law and international norms, where they find themselves often in disagreement with the United States is when we are framing this issue, not only in terms of good and evil and, you know, as if this is another episode of Star Wars, but also because we are framing it as if this is a battle about the future of the rules-based order. That's when we lose a lot of other countries because the old, uh, you know, the one that we have been uh, living in, this rules-based order, is one in which a lot of countries outside of the United States feel that they got a pretty bad shake, that uh, the United States was acting outside of international law, above the law, invaded countries, overthrew regimes, have waged endless war, and it did so with impunity. So they're not going to be on the side of trying to sustain that order. They want to see a much different order in which the United States will be their friend, they will be in support of the United States, but they don't want to see the United States being able to act in the manner that we have acted in the last 20 years, because it's come not only at our own expense, but it certainly has come at the expense of these countries abroad as well. So that's where we're losing them. When we're trying to portray this as if this is the future of the rules-based order, they, we all, many of these countries actually end up on the Russian side because they prefer a multipolar world where great powers actually balance each other rather than the one that we have lived in for the last 25 years. So keeping that in mind, uh, the fact that a lot of uh, international uh, stakeholders are actually not 
necessarily part of this Western coalition at this point at this point. What and just keeping in mind the fact that the United States and Russia are the two biggest nuclear powers on the planet. And the last thing I think anybody wants is an armed confrontation between those two countries. Given those facts, what should the United States do with respect to Ukraine? You have some who say that uh, the United States should be working to effect a diplomatic settlement. You have others that say the United States should be giving the Ukrainians anything they want in terms of military aid, including if that requires a no-fly zone, and that's the only thing keeping the Ukrainians alive. From where you stand, what should the United States be doing policy-wise at this point? First order of business is to make sure that we are not dragged into this war. Because that would end up becoming a nuclear war. And that would be the end of the planet. It would be, if you want to support Ukrainians, uh, it doesn't make much sense to blow up the planet, right? So first order business is to make sure that we are outside of this war, that we're not directly belligerent in it. Secondly, I think we have to work hard to get to a diplomatic solution. As Zelensky himself has said, this would end with some form of a diplomatic settlement. It's not going to end um, uh, just on, on the military uh, field. It's going to end with the two sides talking to each other and coming to some form of agreement. It will likely be an ugly agreement. Don't expect anything beautiful to come out of a war of this kind. But an agreement that ends the fighting at the end of the day is the most important thing that can be achieved at this point. And then once the fighting has ended, one has to negotiate further to make sure that the agreement is one that is sustainable and is not going to cause a new war. That it's not just a respite between wars, but actually something that truly puts an end to the war. No fly zones and measures of that kind that is likely going to lead to Russian retaliation against NATO troops will drag the U.S. into the war and it will be to the detriment of everyone. So I think it's critical to make sure that we walk a fine balance in which whether there is support to the Ukrainians uh, in order, and if there is support, in our, my view, it should be support to make sure that we as quickly as possible get to a serious negotiation. Not a support in order to drag on that war, or as some in Washington say, we have to use this war to truly crush Russia. If those are the objectives, we're going to see a very long war, and it's going to be a war that very likely will drag in the United States in it fully. If people just tuning in, we're talking with Trita Parsi. He's the co-founder and the executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. There's been a lot of framing of Vladimir Putin as an international criminal here. President Zelensky, President Biden, President Trump have all used the term genocide to to, uh, to describe what Putin's doing in Ukraine. There's a lot of folks that want Putin to stand trial at The Hague, at the International Criminal Court. It was very interesting that when uh, Admiral Kirby was on MSNBC with Ari Melber the other day, Ari Melber actually asked him, well, look, why isn't the United States part of the International Criminal Court? When the president said that has not changed the Pentagon's position that war criminal or not, there won't be U.S. support for the ICC to hold that trial, to deal with the evidence you just referenced. Right. Well, I won't speak for the entire U.S. government here, but here in the Pentagon, we've we've been clear about our concerns about the the ICC and some of their activities and and the potential ramifications for American servicemen and women who are serving in Iraq and Afghanistan. I think we've been very clear about that. 
In your view, Trita, how does the United States justify labeling Putin an international criminal, supporting him being tried at The Hague, while we ourselves are not members of the International Criminal Court? That's the contradiction. That is the double standard that is causing a lot of countries worldwide, particularly in the global south, not wanting to buy into this frame that this is a battle for the future of the rules-based order. Because that rules-based order was one in which the United States not only stood outside of the International Criminal Court, but keep in mind, we even sanctioned the judges of that court. We impeded that court. But then when it's convenient for us, we want to use it to drag Putin or someone else there. It, the world no longer will be able to work in this way. There has to be some degree of consistency. If we want to have the ability of rallying the world around us when we believe that there is a, a world leader has committed uh, 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 war crimes, well, then we will have to ourselves submit ourselves to that court, be part of that court. Otherwise, we cannot use that court. So these contradictions are coming back to bite us in the ass right now. And I think instead of saying we should not be pursuing war crimes against Putin, if those have occurred, I mean, those need to be investigated, what we should be doing is doing both. We should become a member of the criminal uh, International Criminal Court. We should abide by its decisions. Uh, but, and we should also take advantage of the fact that if other countries are committing these crimes, instead of going to war with them, we should be using the courts to be able to find a better path to justice. In, in your view, why have there been so few dissenting voices on American media about this Russia-Ukraine conflict? You know, I watched some uh, European press, uh, the British and uh, uh, other international press, and there are robust debates about how various countries should be handling this Russia-Ukraine conflict. With the exception of maybe Tucker Carlson in this country, I don't see any major uh, news commentator on the left, on the right, very few opinion columnists in any of the major newspapers questioning the conventional narrative that Washington is putting out. In a country that seems to be never lacking for opinions, why is it so difficult to find diverse views reflected on this question in the American media, in your opinion? I think that's a great question. It's not just about having diverse views. It's also about having the debate, as you mentioned. We rarely have a good debate on foreign policy. It is, this is unfortunately not the exception. It's almost always the case. It, it very quickly becomes emotional. It very quickly becomes that if you express a view that is contrary to the conventional wisdom, and the conventional wisdom is decided upon rather quickly by uh, uh, not necessarily a majority, uh, then you are deemed to be an apologist for this person or for that country. It is an extremely unhealthy manner to conduct foreign policy. It is not surprising to me that when we have a debate of this low quality, we oftentimes commit major mistakes and pursue policies that are quite erroneous, not just to other countries, but for ourselves. These are policies that are counterproductive to American interests. Invading Iraq, regime change in Libya, all of these different things have not in any way, shape, or form enhanced American security. And when we have such a limited, narrow, and low-quality debate, we really cannot have the expectations that excellent decisions will come out of those debates.
There was one report that I saw, might have been more than one, but one that I took note of, that shows American Pentagon contractors are cashing in big time as a result of this Russian-Ukrainian um, conflict. I'm wondering if you can speak to that at all, and I'm wondering if you think that is driving the policy narrative and the discussion in this country at all. It is quite concerning to see how the weapons producers have now presented themselves as being the defenders of freedom because they're producing many of these uh, weapons that are now being sent to Ukraine or sold to Ukraine. Um, They are definitely cashing in on this. I'm not so sure they're necessarily driving it. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't be able to make a decision, you know, a determination on that on the Ukraine case. I can say, however, that in the case of Yemen, I do believe that the interest and the profits of American weapons producers has become a very, very important factor on U.S. policy in which we are sustaining that war. All of the things we're saying that the Russians are doing in Ukraine, and I think the Russians are doing a lot of those different things, the Saudis are doing in Yemen, and we are arming the Saudis. We are selling weapons and munitions, intelligence to them, and we are enabling them to do those exact same things. The difference is that war has gone on For seven years, more than 400,000 people have been killed, whereas the war in Ukraine has gone on for about two months at this point. Uh, If people just tuning in, we're talking with Trita Parsi. He's with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Uh, I want to ask you about the Saudi Arabia, Yemen situation. But one last question as it relates to Russia. We saw on Monday the Boston Marathon took place. Athletes from Russia and Belarus were prohibited from participating. Now we're seeing the Wimbledon tennis tournament um, ban Russian athletes from participating in that also, something that I don't think they've done with any country since World War II. Uh, Does that make sense? Do Russian athletes tend to drive a lot of Russian foreign policies by (laughs) by by prohibiting Russian athletes? Are we helping bring about a speedy end to this war in Ukraine? We are certainly not. On the contrary, I think that type of action where we are truly mixing politics and sports in a manner that supposedly goes against our principles, because usually we're the ones who are saying that is absolutely wrong if other countries do these things. Uh, But what we're doing is that, frankly, we're enabling Putin to push his narrative that this is not uh, a Western opposition to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but rather this is the West trying to destroy the Russian nation and people as a whole. When we are targeting Russian people, that makes it easier for Putin to make that claim. So I don't see this being particularly... Uh, effective on the contrary, I think it is not only counterproductive, but I think it goes against the very principles that we've been seeking to uphold, which is, you know, sports is a way of uniting people and overcoming conflict. Sports should not be the arena for us to wage conflict. You mentioned the Saudi Arabia and Yemen situation. It's been so frustrating to me over the last few years that this issue has gotten almost no coverage on the news, whereas what I see and read there is uh, is pretty horrific. Can you break down exactly what's happening in Yemen for us? I realize I'm asking you to simplify a pretty complicated situation, but uh, I think a lot of our listeners may be totally unfamiliar with it. They may have heard the term Yemen. They might 
might have turned, heard the term Houthi. Uh, they might know that Saudi Arabia is involved and that we're helping Saudi Arabia in this war. But I think most folks don't understand, A, what this war is about, and B, the level of civilian devastation that's taking place. Can you break it down for us in a Reader's Digest version? I'll try to do it as best as I can in this short period of time. Well, you had a situation in Yemen roughly seven years ago in which uh, internal conflicts there um, uh, led to a group called the Houthis to overthrow the existing government. The existing government then fled to Saudi Arabia and sought the help of Saudi Arabia against these rebels. Those rebels, incidentally, had been one of the main Uh, forces in Yemen that was fighting al-Qaeda in Yemen. And as a result, the United States viewed them as um, not partners or allies, but pretty much on the same side in the fight that actually mattered to us, which was to fight the terrorists that had attacked the United States on 9-11, al-Qaeda. But as Saudis get involved, they uh, invade the country, start bombing it, they accused the Houthis of being close to Iran, which at the time was not that true. There were some connections. Uh, but over the course of the seven years has actually become a self-fulfilling prophecy. The Houthis today are much closer to the Iranians than they were seven years ago. But the United States ends up supporting the Saudis, providing everything from intelligence to weapons to ammunition, political support, backing them, expressing all kinds of statements in in favor of that. And this was largely because the Obama administration who made this decision was worried that if it didn't provide this support to the Saudis, the Saudi opposition to the Iran nuclear deal would become even stiffer. And they wanted to signal the Saudis that, they, you know, just because of the Iran nuclear deal didn't mean that the United States was going to uh, turn away from the Saudis. It was a huge mistake that the Obama administration committed. They should never have supported the Saudis in this war for the most fundamental reason is this fight had nothing to do with the United States. We should not be supporting war in faraway countries unless that conflict in some way, shape or form actually impact us. What ended up happening is that by supporting the Saudis, fighting the Houthis, we weakened the forces that were fighting Al-Qaeda In many cases, it turned out that the weapons that we were providing the Saudis and the Emiratis actually ended up in the hands of al-Qaeda. We also saw that there was coordination between al-Qaeda, the Emiratis, and the Saudis as they were fighting the Houthis. So we essentially put ourselves on the same side as al-Qaeda in Yemen. That makes absolutely no sense. Once Trump came in, because he moved so close to Saudi Arabia, the support for the Saudis actually increased even further. Biden made the promise that he was going to end this war, that he was going to cut the support for the Saudis. It's been more than a year and a half that he's been in office. He is yet to do it. You mentioned three men who are very different, not only in terms of their ideology, but in terms of their style, Biden, Obama and Trump. You can go back further to both Presidents Bush and uh, Bill Clinton 
And it seems like the one thing they all have in common is a reverence for Saudi Arabia, a willing to work with them as partners, uh, a willing to sell them weapons. What is it about our relationship with Saudi Arabia? It seems like no matter what comes out about their affiliations with groups like ISIS or al-Qaeda, the United States government and whoever's president has no problem dealing with them. And uh, whereas other other countries in the region uh, that are oil rich nations like Iran, uh, different administrations have no problem being adversarial with them. What does Saudi Arabia have on us that leads whoever's president to want to be in league with them? Is it all about trading the, um, you know, trading oil in dollars or is there something broader here that we don't know about? I would give you three reasons. The first reason is exactly what you mentioned, oil. And the belief that we need to have this alliance with the Saudis in order for them to keep oil prices stable. Over and over again, that has proven to, if not being false, it actually doesn't work. Just look at what happened with the Biden administration. They've been begging the Saudis for months to pump more oil, to push down oil prices, which will then push down gas prices here in the United States, which will push down inflation. The Saudis have said flat out no. doesn't matter how much we support them in Yemen. It doesn't matter how much we support them against the Iranians. They're still saying no. In fact, at the first meeting between National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and the Saudi Crown Prince, uh, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, Salman started yelling at Jake Sullivan when Jake Sullivan raised the issue of Jamal Khashoggi, the um, uh, Washington Post columnist, that the Saudis beheaded and tortured. Uh, so if, if oil is that factor that people come back to, and I think it is the one that is oftentimes cited by governments themselves, it's a mystery as to how that is supposedly working, because now when we truly need it, we're not getting anything from the Saudis. The second reason is that the Saudis buy so much weapons from the United States. Uh, at $1.60 billion. And we saw that also during the time of the, uh, of the Trump administration. In some ways, I think Trump was more honest. He said it straight up. He said, well, we're supporting them because they're buying our weapons. He didn't use any talking points to try to finesse it. He just said it as it was. They're buying our weapons, and as a result, we support it. But there's also a deeper uh, geopolitical factor, particularly when you bring in the Iranians into the picture. And I think it's important to understand. A lot of people in the U.S. government believe in the idea that we have to dominate almost every corner of the world militarily. They believe in the idea of American military hegemony. And Saudi Arabia is a country that wants American military hegemony in the Persian Gulf. American military hegemony has provided the Saudis with security, a security umbrella. They feel protected. We're guaranteeing the survival of this dictatorial house of Saudi. So they want American uh, uh, military hegemony. So there's an alignment of interest between those in the U.S. government, regardless of which party, who believe that we need to dominate the Persian Gulf and many other places of the world militarily. We have a significant conflict with the Iranians, however, because the Iranians don't want to see American military hegemony in the Persian Gulf. They didn't want it during the time of the Shah, even though Iran and the U.S. were allies, and they certainly don't want it now under this new regime. Uh, so there, there is that deeper conflict. 
uh, with the United States. However, if the United States actually pursues a strategy that serves U.S. interests, we would not be seeking military uh, domination of the Persian Gulf because it is, it is no longer that strategically significant to the United States. I'm way late here, and we're talking with Trita Parsi from the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. So let me just end with this. I don't want to get into the Iran nuclear deal in this conversation because I realize there's a lot to get to there, and hopefully we can discuss it in our next conversation. But one of the key talking points that the critics of the the Iranians always bring up is that they are the world's leading sponsor of of terrorism, the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. Is that an accurate uh, description of Iran? And where would Saudi Arabia rank in terms of being a state sponsor of terrorism? The Iranians certainly have been supporting terrorist organizations. There's no doubt about that. But it seems like our definition of terrorism has now changed so dramatically. It's not even clear what it means any longer. I mean, Sudan was on the state sponsor list of terrorism, but it managed to get up for a simple reason. It normalized relations with Israel. It didn't change any of its other policies, but it normalized relations with Israel and it got off the terrorist list. The Houthis were put on the terrorist list. It's not really clear to me why they were on that list in the first place, but the Trump administration put them on the list in December, right before they left office. And then when Biden came in, within a week, he took them off. I mean, the terrorist list has kind of become a joke, to be completely frank, because it's no longer an actual measurement as to whether the country or an organization is really engaged in terrorism, unfortunately. But if it let's assume for a second that it should be there and that it's somewhat accurate. Well, if that is the case, Saudis would very much be at the very, very top of that list. Even folks from the Obama administration said it publicly. The seed money for al-Qaeda the terrorist network that attacked the United States on 9-11 came from Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is deck, uh, neck deep in support for terrorism. Uh, so again, it really raises the question, why are we being so deferential to a country that is so disregarding of our interest, yet so dependent on our support? What are we actually getting from the Saudis, mindful of the fact that we're offering them so much? Trita Parsi, we're going to have to end it there. There seems like there's never enough time whenever we chat. I look forward to our next conversation very much. Thank you so much, Frank. Talk Thank to you. Soon. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. 